In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. If you are one, then you already know this. But it is tough to be a renter right now, especially in a big city. It's tough to find a decent place, tough to outcompete the dozens of others vying for the same apartment. It's tough to actually afford the rent, tougher still to afford the inevitable rent increases, and sometimes even tough to get the landlord to just take decent care of the place. And after all, what are you going to do? Stop paying rent? Hundreds of tenants and supporters from two West End apartment buildings rallied in the rain today, opposing what they call unfair rental hikes. Tenants from the buildings at 33 King Street and 22 John Street have been withholding rent since June 1st, claiming unfair rental increases from the building's landlord. Rent strikes are a last resort for tenants. But these are increasingly times for last resorts. And several rent strikes are ongoing in Canada right now. But are they legal? How do they actually work? What do striking tenants demand and what, if anything at all, do they get? And what should anyone listening who might find themselves contemplating their own last resort know before they put a hold on payments? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Ricardo Trangen is a senior researcher at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, and he is the author of a book called The Tenant Class. Hello, Ricardo. Hello. Why don't you start by uh, giving us some context? I think people have an, uh, an understanding of what they think it is when they hear it. What is a rent strike exactly? How does it work? A rent strike is where tenants, organized tenants, uh, decide to uphold rent. That means not to pay rent for that month or for the next month, however many months it takes, in order to have more negotiation power with a landlord. They're usually asking for some repairs to be completed. They're usually asking for the rents not to go up by as much as they're supposed to go at some point uh, soon in time, or they're asking um, someone not to be subject to an eviction. But by upholding rent, they're hoping that uh, the landlord will pay more attention to their demands and the landlord will come through and, and satisfy those demands, at least in part. In many ways, it is not very different than labor strikes where workers stop working so the revenues stop coming in and that catches the attention of the boss and then the boss has to sit down and negotiate some sort of deal with the worker. So it's very similar in that way. In terms of the history of them, how long have they been around for? And I guess, are we starting to see more of them? And if so, how does that compare to levels uh, in the past? Tenant activism is as old as Canada. We can go back to before Confederation, and there's a lot of examples where tenants organized 
and then came in put together some sort of collective action in order to press landlords, as we just talked about. Um, rent strike has to be seen as one of the main, the main tactics, right? The idea is to get together, to build power locally, and then to engage with landlords. And then there are different ways of engaging. One of them is that withholding rent. So we see rent strikes, you know, here and there throughout the, the, the history of, of the past century and, and more recently. And um, currently, the rent strikes that we do have in Toronto, uh, there's one that started on May 1st in Thorncliffe Park Drive. Three uh, large buildings there went on a rent strike. And then in June 1st, we have York Southwest and Tenant Union. Um, there's one building that went on strike in 33 King. And then the next month, there's another building that joined the strike. And then more recently, there's other two buildings that are on rent, went on the rent strike as well. So right now in Toronto, we have an estimated more than 600 tenants on a rent strike. And, and in in my to my knowledge, that's the largest one we have seen in this country. I mentioned that we were going to get into the rental crisis here or the housing crisis, which is what we've been calling it on this show. But maybe to add a little bit of context, I don't think you would use that term to describe the situation we're in. Is is that true? Can you explain how you would see it? Yes, I do not like the term housing crisis. And actually, I wrote an entire book to explain what I mean. But when I say there is no housing crisis, because that's a controversial claim. What I mean by that, and I don't mean in any way to belittle the very concrete and, and very real hardship that folks are experiencing. But when we call it a housing crisis, we sort of tend to think of something that is new and then the next, next unexpected and came as a shock. We tend to think of something that is impacting everyone or is impacting at least most people that we know. And we also tend to think of something that everyone is interested in solving. Everyone right. is trying to sort of, you know, get us out of that crisis because no one likes crisis. And I think that is not an accurate way of describing what's happening with housing in this country. We have set up the housing market, the rental housing market specifically, to generate profit. We have set it up so that it provides high returns on investment for investors and for speculators throughout Throughout the 20th century, the Canadian government had opportunity to experiment with non-market housing, models that were not fundamentally set up to generate profit, models that had been implemented and had been successful in other countries, especially in Europe, and we constantly refused to do so. We constantly refused to go that way. And instead, we constantly decided that housing, rental housing markets would be something that allows for profit and, and, and for allows for returns on investment. And so in that sense, um, the market is set up that way. It's kind of actually a little bit nonsensical that we set up the market to generate profit and to allow for high returns on investment and that we keep complaining that it's housing is not affordable. Hmm. It was set up that way. And so that's why I, I challenge a little bit this notion of a crisis because I think that um, the market, it's, it's working as it is set up to work from the strictly perspective of profit making. It's working really well. How is it working for renters, though? What is this setup done and continuing to do? I'm trying to, to get to um, the possible factors behind the rise in rent strikes, especially in a big city like Toronto. 
So when you have a housing, a rental housing market that it's set up to generate profit, from time to time, what happens is that the profiteering and the predatory landlord practices increase for a number of factors. Sometimes it's because there's not enough supply. And sometimes it is because regulations weakened a little bit more than usual. Sometimes it's because we have a particular government in place that is more susceptible to pressures from the industry and so on and so forth. So so that housing market that is set up for profit creations, we can say that sometimes it goes too far and becomes a little bit too greedy and it starts squeezing too much out of tenants, either because there's not enough supply of housing, because the regulations are weaker than, than ever, or because the governments are kind of a little bit complicit with all of this. And in those moments, the hardship that we see the hardship experienced by tenants increases and, and often with that also increases mobilization and, and the fight back. So take us inside some of the longer running rent strikes in Toronto. Why did they start? What do the tenants actually want? So in Torncliffe Park Drive, the three buildings over there, they're fighting in above guideline rent increase. So in Ontario, we have rent controls on occupied units. So rents are supposed to go up only by the annual guideline, which is attached to inflation. But there's a loophole in that regulation. There's a loophole called above guideline rent increase applications, where landlords can show the proof that they carried out some renovations and made some changes to the building and that they now need to increase rents by more than the guideline. So in the case of Cliff Park Drive, uh, they apply for what we call the AGI application, which would mean that over two years, rents would go up by close to 11%. And that's where tenants said 11% over two years is too much with the cost of living increasing, with our salaries not going up by nearly as much, we can't pay that much. We want the landlord to drop that AGI and stick to the to the guideline. And that's why they went on a rent strike. It's important to know that the buildings there are owned by PSP Investments. And PSP Investments is the pension fund of the federal public servants in Canada. Hmm. So we have this, this very awkward situation right now where we have the federal government going around and making all sorts of statements and announcements about the importance of acting on housing and making housing more affordable. Right. But at the same time, the pension plan of federal public servants, it's now moving forward with the eviction proceedings for working class folks who just said, 11% over two years is too much. We can't pay that. Can we talk about it? And the answer was like, no, we cannot talk about it. We're going to start evicting you. You've talked about rent strikes in the context of the growing labor movement and, you know, sort of compared them to, to other forms of labor action we're seeing. Those forms of labor action are explicitly sanctioned as the rights of a union. Are rent strikes legal? Not at this point. Now, right now, the rent strikes will resemble the beginning of the labor movement where a lot of the worker actions and a lot of the strikes were illegal. They didn't take place within a legislative framework. Uh, so today, if a union wants to go, a union just doesn't 
just go on strike, right? right? There's a collective bargaining process in place and then they sit at a table with the bosses and there's an entire procedure for that negotiation to take place and both sides have a fair shot at, at expressing their, their opinions and then, you know, strikes are kind of pretty rare overall because it's just kind of the last resort when everything else fails. The problem with the tenants right now is that tenants do not have collective bargaining rights. So in Cliff Park Drive with PSP Investments, but also in York Southwestern, where one of the landlords there is Dream Impact, the tenants have many times reached out to the landlord and said, can we talk? Can we negotiate? And they get to say, no. We don't want to. They get to very deliberately avoid recognizing the organized tenants as as an actor, recognizing the union as an actor, as an interlocutor that they have to negotiate with. In in York Southwestern, it was kind of an extreme example in the sense that the mayor got involved. Mayor Livichel got involved to listen to the tenants and to their demands. And then she said, okay, I'm going to reach out to Dream Impact myself and I'm going to invite them to a meeting where I can facilitate some sort of of deal here between you and the landlord. And even with the invitation coming from the mayor of Toronto, the landlord said, nah, no thanks, we're not coming. Hmm. Um, So they do not have the obligation to negotiate. And so in that sense, it explains why sometimes a rent strike is is the only resort for, for tenants in the absence of a collective bargaining process and in the absence of collective bargaining rights. Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. You mentioned that eviction procedures are underway. These strikes have been going on for months and months now. Why weren't these folks evicted at the start of the process? How difficult is it to to get them out and how long can they last? Eviction processes can start as soon as a tenant falls into your ears. And the landlord has the right to evict a tenant in your ears. It's a pretty straightforward decision from the perspective of the landlord and tenant board. Um, it is in, in Ontario and in other provinces in Canada, it's different than in other countries where evictions are taken uh, more serious and, and there's a, a judicial process that takes place. Here's a, it can go through this kind of straightforward administrative process and through the landlord and tenant board, uh, but they do take some time because of the backlogs and the overall speed of these boards, which they're notoriously slow in processing requests, both from landlords and from tenants. But again, there's an interesting lesson here. In the case of Torrent Cliff Park Drive, um, the landlord asked the landlord and tenant board to expedite that AGI application process, which would automatically expedite the entire, you know, 
legal aspect of it. Um, and there is no precedent for it. And the board accepted and the board is moving forward and, and expediting their, their process, which again, speaks a lot about the, for me, speaks a lot as, as a political economist. Sometimes I, I take a step back and, and I look how all of these institutions are set up and, and whose favor, whose interests they are kind of bending to. And, and that was, that was a shocking example, even for me, that a landlord just could get the board just to expedite their case just because they want to move ahead with this. No questions asked otherwise. For a long time in this country, and, and we've covered this on, on other aspects of our housing coverage, renting has been viewed as a small step on the road to inevitably homeownership as an adult. That hasn't always been the case, but certainly for a long time, uh, it was viewed that way. Have uh, regulations and our approach to tenant rights adjusted for the fact that now for probably a majority of Canadians, homeownership is not the end goal or the next step, and they are going to be lifetime renters? The short answer is that they haven't. So this total share of the population that rents has been fairly stable for the past 70 years or so. It's usually around 30%. There are now as you mentioned, reasons to believe that there's going to be a larger and larger share, not only of the population, but a larger share of the middle and upper middle classes that will rent for long term. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. We have examples of other countries where there's a much larger share of the population that rents. The problem is that in Canada, we have come to associate housing security with ownership. So there has a lot of policies and funding and and government work that is done to provide access mostly to middle-class folks to home ownership. And then home ownership is saying like, now you own your own place, you take care of it and you're securely housed, no one can kick you out. And and that also brings with it some sort of social status because now you tell your parents you made it, you tell your neighbors you made it. We have a whole set of like symbolic rewards that come with with home ownership in our society. And and in, in the other hand, for tenants, we kind of tend to see them as people who didn't work hard enough, who didn't make it, who didn't kind of achieve that middle class dream. The problem is now, like with the shift, is what we're seeing is we're going to continue to see, I think, it's the middle class and the upper middle class, which are, who are a lot more vocal and who tend to have more of the years of our political class saying, what about us? Because we, we're, not, we're not buying that $2 million house down the street because we can't even with you know, good jobs and good salaries, but we cannot achieve housing security through tenancy because of the legislations that we have in place are pretty weak. And so hopefully we're going to start having a more serious conversation about rent controls, about the processes around eviction, and hopefully we're going to start thinking about how to make renting a more viable long-term alternative that can also provide housing security. It's, a, it's unfortunate that we didn't talk about this, you know, for the past 70 years. We didn't talk as much about it for the mm-hmm. past 70 years because we still had a big chunk of the population renting. But I, I hope we start talking about it now. How do we get to the point where we're having that conversation? It's not something that I've heard a lot of from governments who, who again, seem to be focused, as you mentioned, on, on finding ways for people to get into the housing market. Does it take more and more action by tenants like we're seeing now? And, and what happens if 
rent strikes become or or keep becoming, I guess, more and more common. Obviously, the uh, Landlord-Tenant Bureau is not equipped to deal uh, with that much labor action. I think it takes more political work in general. And I think the tenants are the ones who are already there because of of the day-to-day experience, because of the day-to-day reality. It's clear that there is no one coming for us. You have to organize, you have to come together, build power, and then confront the landlord and then push on governments and do what you got to do to ensure the housing security of yourself, of your family, of your neighbors, of your community. Uh, but I, what I'm hoping is that more and more folks, and that's kind of, the, in many ways, that's the gist of the book. I hope more and more folks are going to come and understand come to the understanding that housing is a political question. It is not a technical policy issue. And I think that is what prevents a serial conversation in this country around housing is that we have convinced ourselves with great assistance of the great, of the real estate industry and through a lot of lobbying and in PR work that they do that what we're seeing right now in this housing crisis is some sort of technical problem and we need some, you know, elaborate technical solutions. Some, we need to bring some policy folks around the room to have brilliant ideas and write reports and that that's what's going to solve it. And, and, and that is just very disingenuous way of thinking about this. The question here is that there is a sector in, of the economy, the real estate industry, and there are a number of individuals in this country that are making a lot of money, like like a lot of money, mm-hmm. because the way of the housing system it's set up. They don't want it any different. They actually actively love to keep things exactly the way they are. And what we need is not to bring ever more policy wonks to a room and trying to figure out a technical solution to this issue. And I'm talking myself out of a job here. But what we need is political pressure so that politicians change legislation to make housing not a commodity, not a financial asset that can be traded back and forth and a lot of money be made out of it, but it's that protects housing as an essential for life and, and something that everyone should have access to in one form or another. So that is the political conversation that we need to have. That's the political work we need to do. Last question then. Is there a place, preferably in this country, uh, elsewhere if not, where you can look to a municipality that has one or two of these kind of policies in place? And uh, what would that look like? What are they? What would be a, a big first step in that direction? We do have plenty of examples in Canada where we have non-market housing, right? Non-market housing is the umbrella term for public housing, co-ops, and, and not-for-profit housing providers. Uh, it's where housing is created and rented or in some cases sold without the, the profit motive behind it. And, and when you move that, remove that profit motive from the equation, guess what? It becomes cheaper and also it becomes more secure. People usually stay for longer. We do have non-market housing in Canada. It's only 4% of all the housing in Canada, whereas in other countries, it is a much uh, larger share of the total housing stock. We could increase that and that would be a way to directly improve housing affordability. So presently, the government is doing what it always does, which is to throw money 
at the private developers and arguing that we're throwing more money at private developers because they're going to build and then prices are going to go down. There's nothing to substantiate that claim other than some vague notion of supply and demand. Uh, but that's what the federal government is continually doing it. Instead, if we were to provide more funding directly to that non-market housing where profit is not part of the equation, that share of the housing market, we know it's for sure more affordable. And the second last thing I would say is that this country um, used to have in many provinces more serious rent controls. We used to regulate how much rents can go by, increase by, and we still have some of them, some rent controls, but there's a number of loopholes around them. They're becoming weaker and weaker. And that weakening of legislation is making things worse for tenants and, and, and helping to push some of them to, to take collective action in the form of a rent strike. So in short, what I'm trying to say is that we know the solutions. We have known the solutions for a very long time. We know that when we control the market, when we put in place legislation that permits tenants to organize and, and to engage collectively with their landlords, we know that when we fund housing that is not for profit, we know those policies will improve the chances for tenants to fighting back and we improve the overall material conditions. But we have consistently chosen not to do that. So what I think we need is the political work to push politicians in that direction instead of the pseudo-technical debates that we have where we continue to pretend that we need to, to put in place the correct levers so the supply and demand one day magically hit some sort of equilibrium and make things better for everyone else, right? We know the solutions. We just not, not have the political willingness at the level of elected officials to implement them. Ricardo, thank you so much for this. It's a great look inside uh, what's broken and how to fix it. Thank you for having me. Ricardo Trangin of the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, author of The Tenant Class. That was The Big Story. If you want more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can look up Rental Crisis, and I'm sure you will find a few more articles for context. You can also email us at hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca and ask us anything you're interested in us doing an episode on. You can do the same thing on Twitter at the Big Story FPN, and you can even call us and leave a voicemail. That number is 416-935-5935. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.